We're going to kind of dig in today to our final message in our series entitled, Knowing That You're Called. Knowing That You're Called. And my burden, my heart, for these last few weeks, really, if I were to try to summarize it, it would be this. For each and every person in God's family to know that they are created with a purpose and with the uh, calling to do extraordinary things for God here in this world. We started out in the beginning in verse, or chapter, uh, week one talking about the parable of the wedding feast where Jesus spoke about in Matthew 22, the kingdom of God is like a, a wedding feast. And then last week we preached on the second epistle or letter of Peter that he writes to the saints in the church that he, he writes just before he is passing from this earth, just before his martyrdom. And the statement in that was that Peter made that we hit on was, make your calling and election sure, my brethren, for in doing these things you'll never stumble. And there's just something significant that we need to grasp, that we need to understand when we get settled in this fact that God has called us and that becomes a sure footing and foundation under our lives and we begin to live for that thing and nothing else. It just puts to death other options and God begins to use us in mighty ways where, where our heart is truly, Lord, I'm living only for you. Give me Jesus and give me only Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so uh, the ultimate fulfillment, if you will, of our calling is when we go to be with God in glory. Spoke quite a bit on this. And the fact that there's always more that's yet ahead, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says that when that which is perfect comes, that which is partial passes away. What is the perfect? It's the fulfillment. It's, the perfect means to be working out down into an end process. And so when we complete this life and we go to be with Jesus in heaven, we'll experience the fulfillment of what God has really created us for, which is to be in his presence for all of eternity. And we see the, the indication of God's will and his design for man back in the garden. We know when he made Adam that he created man and he breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. He was alive and that he created man to be in presence with him. It says he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, which is like a breeze and a wind. And it's the presence of God just blowing and being around them all the time. But it also says that when he created man, that he created all these other things, the earth and the, the celestials, he created the fish and the birds and the animals. And he said to man, subdue the earth, multiply, have dominion. So he created man to, and designed him for presence and for relationship, but he also assigned him works to do. Do you see that? He gave him tasks to go and, and subdue the earth and multiply and to actually do things while he was there. So there was a part of man's purpose and intention, part of our purpose and intention, that's not only to go to be with God for eternity, but also for God to use us while we're here to do some mighty and powerful things. And I pray that that is what we devote our lives to fulfilling. And so uh, we're going to dive in today into the book of Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the story of Moses and the burning bush. Before I do, though, just real quick, do you know after God was saying all those things about what is good, the earth was good, the stars were good, all these things, you know the first thing he said ain't good? Anybody know? Man can't be alone. Right? Any men out there? Amen to that. Right? I'm glad God saw that. He said, yeah, I'm going to create woman and I'm going to give him a helper. And I've been glad ever since he'd made that decision, right? He said, it ain't good for man to be alone. I love you, babe, so much. <laughs> so we're going to dig in. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. And Moses, a little bit about his life. You know, Moses' life is kind of broken up into three sections. Moses lived to be 120. And you can really break his life down into three 40-year increments. The first 40 
is when he was raised in Egypt. We know he's a Hebrew, obviously, born of a, of a Hebrew woman, but he was raised under Pharaoh's daughter, so he was raised in royalty. He had command and uh, authority over a lot of Pharaoh's soldiers and troops and things like that in the kingdom. And then one day Moses goes out and he sees one of his fellow Hebrews being beaten by an Egyptian soldier and he just can't stand it. He just can't sit by and do, and do nothing. And so he jumps in and out of anger, he, he kills the Egyptian soldier. This ultimately causes Moses to flee to the backside of the desert in the land of Midian, where he spends the next 40 years leading sheep and taking care of his uh, father-in-law's flock in the land of Midian as a shepherd. Now, just so you know, in case you were ever wondering, Midian is interesting. It comes from the son of Abraham by the woman Keturah. So Abraham, he had Ishmael by his bondservant, uh, Hagar, the maidservant Hagar, and then he had Isaac by Sarah, but then he ended up, after Sarah uh, passed away, he married his concubine, Keturah, and I think they had like six more kids, six, six sons together. One of those was named Midian, and so that was how the Midianites in the land of Midian came to be. So Abraham had a lot of kids, like I'm one to talk, but anyway... <laughs> And, uh, and so that's where this takes place. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. We're going to start in chapter 3. We're going to read in verses 1 through 12. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, most scholars agree Horeb is also Mount Sinai. The mountain of God is referred to many times. It's the holy place. Moses received the Ten Commandments on the mountain of God. It speaks about that in Deuteronomy. And so we draw the conclusion that Horeb, is a, it's a region, but it, the place that he was at was also Mount Sinai, where he would eventually get the Ten Commandments. So it's just interesting that he's in the desert during this time, and this is where he ends up having this encounter with God with this burning bush. So verse 2 and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So you have this bramble bush, this, this dry bush, and normally if a bush catches fire, it's consumed, right? It's devoured. But Moses sees this bush, and it's really strange because it's in, inflamed, it's encapsulated in this flame, but it's not being burned up. It's not being consumed. And then the voice of the Lord speaks to Moses out of the flame. So verse 3, Moses says, Well, I will turn aside now and see this great sight. Why does this bush not burn? So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. So it's almost like, God speaking to Moses, the angel of the Lord speaking to Moses out of this flame. He's having this encounter. God's trying to speak to him about calling, what he's wanting to call him to go do. And Moses looks down, he sees this miraculous thing of this bush not being consumed by fire, and he kind of gets distracted by it. He's like, wow, I'm going to, this bush, this is kind of interesting. This is amazing. This bush isn't getting burned up, which I got to admit, if I saw a bush on fire and it wasn't burning, it would be pretty amazing. It would be pretty interesting. Like, wow, that's really crazy. But God says, Moses, look up. I'm talking to you. Moses, take your eyes off of this natural thing, this, this bush, and look up and hear what I'm saying to you. And the flame is God's presence, you know, his, his power that surrounds us. The bush represents a natural element on the earth, and God's power can inflame and surround man and not consume him, and he can use us for great and mighty things. But I think God was just saying to Moses, like, hey, there's going to be a lot of miraculous things that are going to happen, but don't ever take your eyes off me. Don't, don't ever take your eyes off of me. Don't look down, look up, and keep your eyes focused on what I'm doing and what I'm saying. Because it'd be easy to get distracted about the things that are happening down here. Even when God's up to things, we still need to keep our eye on him and not the thing. 
I think that's why Jesus said, hey, it's really great when the apostles returned from being sent out in ministry. He said, it's really great that, you know, you're casting out demons and you're healing the sick and you're praying for people. But listen, don't ever forget that the greatest thing is that your name is written in the book of heaven. Keep your eye on Jesus all the time and all those things. Great uh, miracle signs and wonders follow those who believe, right? But those things just follow. We don't focus on those things. We focus on him. So anyway, he says, look up. And he begins to speak to him from this fire. He says, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and all the ites. There's a lot of them. <laughs> now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh. So here comes the call, right? I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now we have the response of Moses. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, God's response back. So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Horeb, mountain of God, where the Ten Commandments will be given. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we just come with expectation, God, and hungry, humble hearts. We're here to receive from what you want to give us today, Lord, and we ask for that in a mighty way. I pray that you would just anoint me to speak your word. Uh, there's nothing in me to do this if you don't show up, God, so I'm fully dependent on you. Open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what it is you want us to hear and see today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Moses comes he sees this burning bush and God takes this opportunity this is after eight he's 80 now this is at the end of the 40 years in the desert he says it's time for me to to rescue my people out of Egypt and Moses is kind of like a forerunner of Christ in the sense that he is going to be used as a deliverer God's going to go deliver the people out of Egypt and Moses is going to be his instrument there's other things that show Moses and Christ some forerunning Forerunner symbolism, Moses was spared as a baby and hidden when Pharaoh was trying to kill all the firstborn sons. Jesus was hidden when Herod was trying to kill all the firstborn males. And so Moses ends up becoming an instrument of deliverance when Jesus is, in fact, the deliverer. Okay? So Moses is here. He's hearing from the angel of the Lord in this flame, which in this case is actually God himself appearing in an angelic form. It's a bit mysterious, but there are angels in the Old Testament and in the Bible, not just the Old Testament, that God uses to go and communicate for him to people. But there are times when God comes and it says, the angel of the Lord. In your New King James translation, typically it will capitalize angel. That's how you know that's what he's talking about. It's a theophany. It's what that's called, where God appears. It's like Christ in a pre-incarnate form, visiting in an angelic form. But it's God himself. We know this because no angel can receive worship from man. Only God can receive worship. Moses takes his feet off, or his sandals, that would be weird, takes his sandals off of his feet. <laughs> Just pop those babies right off there. Takes his sandals off of his feet because it's holy ground, and he comes and he worships God in this moment. Um, we know that there's other places in the Bible where that happens. So anyway, God's meeting with Moses. He's saying, I'm calling you to go and deliver my people out of Egypt. What I want to do today is I want to get granular with you on this subject of calling and purpose. I want to really dig into some details of how we can know that we are in fact called to something, that God is calling us to do a work or to give us an assignment. 
And I'm going to give you some points. I don't want to suggest to you that these are the only points that you could use to figure that out. I'm just showing you that these are things that I have learned and seen throughout my years with God and Scripture that help me to discern, is God, in fact, wanting to do this work in and through my life in this particular season right now? And I think that God will give us some light and some details on these things because He's concerned with not only the big picture, but also the day-to-day and how we live our lives for Him. Amen? So, the first point, if you're taking notes, knowing that you're called to something is that there is a gift for it. There is a gift for it. And I don't mean just like some gift where, you know, I can, I don't know, I can throw a baseball well or whatever, although God can gift us athletically. But what I, what I mean is, is that there are supernatural gifts that God gives us, puts in us, His children, that equip us to do what He is calling us to do. In fact, the work of our purpose being fulfilled in this earth actually is not accomplished without spiritual or supernatural gifts being activated. God wants to use us, but He wants to give us giftings that will empower us to do that. One of the main reasons that I think that's the case is because it's easy to look on a natural gift and give man credit. It's impossible to look on a supernatural gift and think that that was man. Make sense? And so God gives us these things. Moses, one of the things that he had was a gift of leadership. There was kind of a gift of leadership on his life. We see that he functioned in that in Egypt whenever he was over so much of Pharaoh's kingdom. And then he goes into the backside of the desert and he's functioning over the livestock and the, the, the flocks and all of this huge estate of his father-in-law Jethro. And so then when it comes time for him to move into this third trimester, that sounded really weird, of his calling, the, the final 40 years of going into Egypt... This gift of leadership obviously is going to be necessary for God to use him to do that. And so Moses Moses is ready to respond. But he pushes back instead of receiving that wholeheartedly. He pushes back and he's like, well, Lord, you know, he's he's got this gift of leadership, but he starts to focus on what he doesn't have, right? He says, if you read a little bit further in chapter 4, he says, Lord... um, I'm not eloquent with words. I'm not a good speaker. I can't communicate from a pulpit. I'm not good on a microphone. And he he thinks he has God. Gotcha, right? The Lord must overlook the fact that I don't have a gift for speaking. I got him now. I'm not going to be the one he wants to use. And the Lord responds in an interesting way. He says, Moses, don't worry about that. I'll give you the words to say. I'll activate that gift in the moment and in the time where it's needed. I'll put those words in your mouth. I mean, he probably didn't have to do a whole lot of talking when he was in the wilderness. I mean, if he was talking to sheep all day, he'd probably be checked into a psychiatric ward, right? So this gift wasn't necessarily being used or activated as much in that time but God says, no, I'm going I'm to put the words in your mouth. Don't worry about that. There's a gift that I'm going to give you for that specific thing. And then Moses pushes back again. No, God, I don't have it. You know, I'm not going to be able to do it. It says that the Lord got upset with Moses. And he finally said, fine, I'm going to use Aaron. Aaron's going to be your spokesperson. You're going to come into Tabernacle, presence with me. I'm going to communicate with you. You're going to communicate to Aaron. And then arrogance is going to communicate to the people. God's got to be thinking, you're so complicated, Moses, you know. (sighs) But I think the point of that is when I examine these scriptures, when I read these passages, I very much think that God wouldn't have had to do that that with Aaron, that he would have just given Moses that gift along with the other gifts to be able to fulfill this work that he was calling him to do. But because Moses had doubt and he was pushing back, the Lord said, fine, I'm going to use Aaron as your spokesperson. And so here's a point that I want to make is that sometimes the gifts of God that he's put in us are not always recognizable and on the surface in every single season. 
that there are times when there's a new gift for a new season. But it's been there. God's just been waiting for the moment to stir that thing up. And just like all gifts, it requires faith to activate it. And I believe in a lot of cases that we look at the giftings of God over our lives, the things that God just lavishly showers us with, with abilities and gifts and things that He puts in all of us, but that there are many times more gifts that are actually untapped in the body of Christ than gifts that we've actually tapped and been exposed to. I mean, it really does make sense if you think about it. Do we think we have looked and seen every gift that God has to give? Is it possible that we know every one of those on the list that we have and that's just the way it's always going to be? I think not. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. He's speaking in like celestial terms with this language. And when we examine the celestials, there's more stars in the sky and planets in the universe than we will ever be able to count or know. But we know some of them. And I think that there's just gifts and things in most of us that God has put in there that are just waiting to be stirred up and activated. But our posture can never be that posture like Moses said, like, no, I don't have that. You can't use me for that. Forget about that. Right. God says, no, I want to I want to I want to give you that thing so that you can operate in that thing to do what I'm calling you to do. Now, listen to this concerning gifts that God puts in us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. says, Blessed be the Father, or the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing means every spiritual gift, everything, every tool, everything necessary for us to do what He's calling us to do. And it says, from the heavenly places. So the point of origin, the source of these gifts, is never in the natural realm. It originates in the spiritual realm, so by faith we have to lay hold of that and pull from the spiritual realm into the natural realm so that God can begin to use those things in and through our lives. It has a point of origin in the heavenlies, which I don't know about you, but frankly just absolutely fascinates me. You know, I can try to learn to be good at something that's natural, but if there's something spiritual or supernatural that I need a gift for, I've got to call upon that by faith from a realm that exists beyond this natural realm. It just kind of blows me away. It says that God has, has done that, and He wants to continue to do that. Ephesians 4, chapter 8 says, When He ascended on high, this is Christ, when He ascended on high, He led captivity captive, and he bestowed gifts on men, which he just means he just showered, lavishly bestowed upon us all of these gifts and abilities that would be able to flow and function in us to be able to bring him glory and bring honor to the Son. And so there are gifts in you that are supernatural. Not just natural things, but supernatural. My question is, have you activated them? Have you been walking in them? Some people don't even believe in spiritual gifts whatsoever. But I would say that if, us, if we are going to really see the great things of God that He's called us to do happen in our life, we are going to have to tap into supernatural abilities in order to walk those things out. Katie and I joke around. We're kind of trying to figure out. She's pretty sure I have the gift of aggravation. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a spiritual gift, but there are different gifts in all of us that God gives. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. It says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, differences of ministries, but the same Lord, and diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So you have an array of gifts, we'll call like some of your spiritual makeup, your you know, holy calling that God's wired you for. You have an array of gifts and things in you that are completely different than me. 
or the person sitting next to you. And that's a beautiful expression of the way God is diverse and unique in how he creates all of us. But it's interesting because he says behind all of those different gifts is the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit, the same person who is empowering every single one of those things. And I think that we need to come to a place in our walk with the Lord and maturing where we can get to where we literally can say that I want to celebrate other people's giftings. Does that make sense? Like where we see other people functioning in God-given gifts and abilities and instead of looking at ourselves and thinking, why don't I have that gift or desiring someone else's gift, we can actually celebrate the gifts that God has put in other people. Because he says they all work for the profit of all. The fact is that none of them were ever given to be self-serving, right? They're utilized, these gifts are utilized so that we can serve others and serve God by building His kingdom. We don't have a narrow view of those. It's not designed to bring us self-satisfaction. In fact, the only gift that I've seen in the Bible where it really is like in a way that it is utilized or exercised is kind of for personal edification is the gift of a prayer language. Praying in the spirit, it builds that, your spirit man up. There's also corporate applications for that. But that is a gift that we, when we pray in the spirit, it builds our inner man. But all these other gifts, prophecy, miracles, healing, knowledge, uh, all these things that God gives are meant to edify the body as a whole. So if we look upon gifts and we ever become kind of narrowed in to serving ourselves or thinking that it's to just make us happy, then it's going to begin to be a hindrance to how those gifts flow and operate in our lives. Everybody with me? We have to be uh, looking at the bigger picture. I think Samson was a really good example of this. Samson had a supernatural ability of strength. And I am convinced, personal opinion, that Samson would have been one of the greatest leaders in all of Israel. But that gift of strength that God gave him, he was very self-serving about it. You know, he became pretty haughty. He was a womanizer. He was a glutton. I mean, he just, he never went and led people to go do things. He just kind of went on his own and went on his own rampage and left the rest of the people of Israel by themselves and kind of was a one-man show. And ultimately, it ended up being his downfall. And so if, if we're going to exploit gifts, then it's going to have a major adverse effect on the way those gifts flow and operate in our lives. But praise God that he gives us gifts and abilities that are wired into, lined up with the calling that he has for us so that we can accomplish things for him and bring him glory. Be a good time for everybody to say amen. Amen. So that is point one, is that there is a, a gift for that. Point two is that there is a grace for that. There is a grace for for it. So when Moses says, no, I can't do this, Lord. I'm not going to be able to go. Who am I going to say sent me and all this stuff? Mo, uh, God responds with this very simple yet powerful statement. Verse 12, if we can throw that up there. He just says this. He just says, I will go with you. I will go with you. Which means that my presence will be on you, over you, surrounding you, protecting you every step of the way. If that wasn't the case, forget about it, baby. There's no way he could go do what he was going to go do. So God understood, like, I think in a natural, yeah, there's no way. But all you really need to know is that I am going to go with you. My grace will be on you and with you for this thing that I'm calling you to. We see a picture of this in the desert. There was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. This represented the presence of God over the tabernacle. And when that presence moved, guess what the people did? They moved. Do you think that it would have mattered if they were in the middle of a nice simmering pot of chili that needed a few more hours to simmer? 
I mean, I know it's good chilly in the fall, but man, if the cloud is moving and the grace is going, pack up everything, baby, and dump out the leftovers. We got to get heading out because the grace of God is shifting. The presence of God is moving and leading us into something else. Let's flip the script a little bit and look at it the opposite way. If the presence of God, the grace of God wasn't going in a direction, would it have made any sense for them to pick everything up and start heading out when the presence stayed where they were? No, they understood that. God made it real easy, the, the cloud and the, and the fire, right? So they knew, but they went where the presence went. And when God is going to use us and send us to do things and accomplish things, His grace will absolutely be upon us. His grace is unmerited favor and abilities that is leaning into us to do what He's calling us to do. But I will say this, you could try as much as you want, you could become as good as you want or successful as you want in the world's eyes or standards, but if the grace of God isn't on you for the thing you're trying to do, you will never be able to do enough. Never be able to do enough to fulfill the spiritual calling that God has put on you that He wants to lead you into. And grace, it becomes like a very directional thing for us in our lives. Feeling the grace of God on us in a season for a thing He's calling us to do. I'm not talking about grace that reconciles us to God, the grace that God gives us and saves our soul. I'm talking about the grace that rests on us to do the things that He's calling us to do. Kind of like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, by the grace of God, I am who I am. So he speaks on identity. I'm a child of God. I'm a born-again believer. I'm saved. My spirit's regenerated because the grace, the unmerited favor of God is passed on to me, has been imputed to me, and he's reconciled me to himself. I am who I am by the grace of God. But then he goes to the next step, and he says, but I do what I do by the grace of God. He says, I've labored more abundantly than you all, but, but not I, the grace of God that was in me. Meaning all this stuff that I've been busy about the work of doing, this whole apostolic calling, this whole evangelistic thing, all of this that I've been busy about the business of doing all these years, it's been the grace of God that's been doing that in and through me. And I think Paul knew if that grace wasn't there, then that's not what he needed to be doing. There's a different kind of grace on different people to do different things. I want to prove that to you. Take a look, first of all, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, amplified version. I'm sorry, verse 7. It says, Yet grace, God's undeserved favor, was given to each one of us, not indiscriminately, but in different ways. Just pause for a second. So he's saying it wasn't indiscriminate, it was discriminate. <laughs> Meaning God chose different ways of grace, different measures of grace, different kinds of grace to give to different people to do different things. He says it wasn't indiscriminate, but it was actually given in different ways in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and abundant gift. Now listen to how he says this in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Paul's talking about his mandate to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, a group of people otherwise previously unexposed to the message of the gospel before it got opened up to them through the Apostle Paul, primarily. He says, The Gentiles become fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now listen to the way he explains his calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To, whom, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I would preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he says this whole mission of going and blowing the gospel wide open to the Gentile world that God has specifically put a grace on Paul that's not on other people to go fulfill this specific mission. Now he likens this in a later place in Galatians 2 where Peter's mission and assignment and the grace on Peter is different. 
Peter was primarily tasked to be the apostolic leader of the church, but he was primarily over the, the uh, evangelism to the, to the Jewish nation. There were some Gentile evangelizing that got done, but primarily Peter's role was to the Jews. Listen, Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, When they saw the gospel was for the uncircumcised, and it had been committed to me, this is Paul, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, and for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So when James and Cephas and John saw, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the, this grace had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentile nations, and they to the circumcised. Do you see that? I'm trying to just make a point to you that God's grace, His, His power flowing through you will be on you for certain things but not on you for other things. And that's where we require discernment. And very simply put, I'm not called to do what you're called to do and you're not called to do what I'm called to do. And if I try to go be you or you try to go be me, we're gonna run into a lot of problems. But if we're doing what God's uniquely wired us to do and his grace and favor is going with us, ultimately hell can never stop it. One of the things that Katie and I have felt called to do, part of kind of the direction for our lives and the way we raise our family, is we feel that God's called us to homeschool our children. Now, I don't think that's for everybody, okay? In fact, I've had people ask me about that before, so just so kind of to make this statement, we're, we're not a, a homeschool church or a private school church or a public school church. Like, I, I think that those options are all different and for different people based on what God is wanting to do in and through your family. And I think you need to seek him for that. There's wisdom and ways to go about the decision for all of those options, you know. But we, every year we come to this place and we've been doing it for about five or six years now. But every year during summer break, we come to this place at the end of the break before we start up again where we just take some time and we pray and we seek God and we say, Lord, is this still what you're calling us to do? Because there's absolutely a grace on her, on our family, on our kids to be able to do this thing. I mean, if it was just me, it wouldn't be happening. I'm just telling you right now. There's really a grace on her more than me. But, but there's a grace over our home for that. But here's the point is that we don't just kind of launch into that season after season after season and never revisit this thing with God. We always come back and say, hey, Lord, is, is this still what you want? Because that could change at any moment, right? And we want to know that his grace is still there for that. And when we come to that place of peace and assurance, then we can move forward in confidence and faith, knowing we'll be resting under that grace. It's a beautiful place to be, a wonderful place to live. And I just I share that to encourage you. Sometimes that grace can be shifting or moving in a different direction in your life. It was there for a season in the past, but it's moving into a new place in your future. We would want to be led by grace, not previous experiences necessarily. Does that make sense? So there is a grace for that. And there's some things that there just simply isn't a grace for. And I've been very clear with Katie about this, that there is not a grace on me for laundry. And I'm really not sure it's there for dishes either, but I struggle through that. But there's just not a grace on me for laundry. And I'm not going to force it. <laughs> the Lord gives as the Lord chooses. He disperses. To... <laughs> um, but you do see this on, on different people, right? I mean, certainly you see uh, this in like the military and teachers in school. I mean, you can see a grace on people when they're really functioning in what God's gifted them and called them to do. And, and when there's not a grace on them, it just, it just doesn't fit. I mean, they can do a lot of things. They can dress that thing up, make it look good, experience some worldly success. But at the end of the day, they're falling short of, short of their spiritual calling. And I don't think any of us want that, right? We want to go where God is leading us and into the things that he is calling us to. So that is point two, is that there's a grace for it. And point three is there's a passion for it. There is a passion for it. Moses was very passionate about God's people. Now, his passion actually got him into trouble 
because he ended up killing the Egyptian out of anger and out of haste. But that really shows how passionate he was about God's people. God could send him and use him to go into harm's way to face Pharaoh, who he could probably be killed even after all those years, would probably be killed if he wanted him dead, but send him into that place. And Moses' passion for God's people was like resounding on the inside of him, driving him into harm's way, knowing that if God was with him, who could be against him? Jeremiah even says it like this. He says this, this, this prophetic calling that you've put on me, God, to go and preach this really hard message to preach to unrepentant sinners to turn from their wicked ways. I don't want any part of it. I tried to walk away from it. I tried to run from it. But the truth is, it's like a fire down in my belly that's shut up in my bones and it just can't keep from coming out. <laughs> Are you passionate about something that stirs your soul that way? Maybe you've even been shelving it for years not activating it, not stepping out into it and following through. But if you're honest, the desire and the passion for the thing has never really left you. That could be a good indication that this is part of what God wants to use you to do a work in and through you for him in this world. There's a passion that God puts in us. It's part of his design. Psalmist said it this way in chapter 37, verse 4. He said, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Desires, deep-rooted affections, deep passions that you would almost say, it's almost like it's down in here, it's actually not in here. Because God put that thing down in the deepest part of you. But those desires, you notice, He says, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. What's that mean? It means intimacy, relationship, closeness with God. Walking with him as a friend walks with a friend. Like God was with Moses, right? He says, have that kind of intimacy and relationship. Because when you do, you're so close with God that his desires for you literally become your desires. And then your desires line up with his and you begin to almost like merge together and align together and God begins to move you down this highway of the journey in your life where you are accomplishing what he's created you for. And it's fulfilling and satisfying the deepest part of you. There's no satisfaction that the world could bring you that could ever compete or compare with that. Those are the kind of desires that I'm talking about that cause that passion to burn in us. But you also have to know it's important that you don't just take that, walk away with it, and think anything I'm passionate about, that means that this is God. Not the case. Because the Bible warns us against passions of the flesh. There's desires of our heart. God puts passions in us. But there's also passions of the flesh that are not God. Strong emotional implications, strong feelings. That's why we're never led by feeling and emotion. We're only led by the voice and spirit of God. So these things that he speaks about, he says, don't let those passions sway you or misdirect you. In Galatians chapter 5, verses, verse 24, it just says, Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. So this flesh, this natural man, carries with it ungodly passions and desires. And it says also in that same chapter that the spirit and the flesh, they're constantly at war with each other. They're contrary to each other. They never want the same thing. It's so important that we are grounded in the word of God, the spirit, already spoken word of God, the clear communication of his will and purpose that no thing we ever think, ever feel that we're hearing or wanting to do that contradicts or violate this could we ever really say was God. Does that make sense? He gives us this word so that we can say when we're feeling a feeling, 
having a sense of something, a desire of something, if it doesn't line up with this, if it contradicts what God has already said in His Word, if God isn't speaking this thing to me and confirming this thing to me according to the truth of His spoken Word, then this thing isn't something that I can stand on and rest on. You've got to have the Word in you to know that. I mean, you say somebody goes, well, I really feel called to this job or to this career. Hey, great. You may very well be. I feel called to start this business. You may very well be. And in order to get this thing started or to get ahead, I feel like it's okay if I just cheat a little bit to get there. Or I'm just going to kind of compromise my convictions on honesty a little bit, but it's not really a big deal because everybody else does it. Listen, I would say humbly but strongly, that ain't God. Now, I know I'm not God. I'm just saying, if you're telling me that he's telling you something that goes against what he's already said, by way of deduction, I can just say to you confidently as your pastor, you're not hearing from God on that. Because he'll never tell you to do something that violates what he's already spoken right here. Does that make sense? And I want to show you one last part of this story with Moses that kind of drives this particular point home that I'm making. You can never pursue your calling. No more passion, gift, you know, all these things. You can never move into this thing if you're going to take an ungodly direction to get there and walk the thing out. We see this. Moses has all this go on between him and God, kind of gets over this pushback issue. God, you know, gives him Aaron, going to take care of all that. And and it says that Moses was now on his way. We're going to jump into chapter 4 here in a second. Moses is now on his way out from the mountain of God. So he's headed to Egypt now to go carry out this task and this mission. And something really crazy happens in chapter 4, just a couple of verses. Very easy to overlook or pass by this. But when you read just verses 24 through 26, it's like, whoa, wait wait a minute. What, What are we talking about here? So let's look at this real fast. Verses 24 through 26. And it came to pass on the way, so on the way to Egypt from Horeb, and at the encampment, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Whoa, time out. Wait a second. Did I read that right? God just spoke to Moses out of a burning bush, gave him Aaron, going to use him to deliver the people. God heard the cries, and Moses just left. He just got started. And God is seeking to kill him. I need to reread that. Is that what that says? That is what that says. Do you know why God was seeking to kill? Some of you are like frantically looking through your... Does it really say that? It does. It really does say that. It's on the screen too, just so you know. It says it in every translation in different ways. Here's what happened. Moses had a son, firstborn son, by Zipporah, his wife. And let's just read verses 25 and 26. So Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. She took a sharp flint rock and she cut off the foreskin of his male anatomy and she threw it at his feet like a Frisbee, I guess. I just want to put that picture in your head for a second because I don't want you to be too serious. You're looking at me. You're so serious right now. You ever hand-toss pizza? You know how they flip those things around? No, never mind. Anyway, sorry. Bad. This one's not recorded. (laughs) Um, Service three is like, let it loose, whatever, you know. So she circumcises him, and she, you know, she's, she's obviously very upset with him. Here's why, and this is why God was going to kill him. Because Moses, before he was ever called to go take the people out of Egypt, he was already called to be a dad. Are you hearing me? He was already called to be a father. And that calling was not going to be violated by an assignment into Egypt. And Moses had failed as a father. He had neglected to circumcise his firstborn son on the eighth day, as is required by Jewish tradition, was the seal of the Abrahamic covenant. When they were circumcised, that seal 
brought them under covenant with God and made them a part of being God's people and kept them under the protection and the hand of God as they lived. And if you remember what happens when Moses goes into Egypt and the plagues all come and the final night, right? The angel of death went through the city. What did the angel of death do? Killed all the firstborn males unless they were in covenant with God. If Moses would have went on to Egypt and left this high priority of his calling of being a father undone with his son, he would have been one of those dead children that day. Wow. But Zipporah understood this, and she jumped in, and she circumcised the son, got this thing right, fixed this deal with Moses, and then he turned around and he went on his way. Wow. Listen, there are a lot of things that God wants to use us to do. There's different seasons in our life, different assignments, different missions, all kinds of things. And it's absolutely wonderful and beautiful. But if we try to move forward on anything in a way where we neglect the weightier matters of our calling that God has already issued to us, then we will experience great calamity. I've seen many a men, and it's, it's not just men. I just, because I'm a guy, I, other men that I know, I've been privy to things that, in their lives in this way. But I'm just telling you, I've seen many a men who get on fire with ambition and excitement, and, and, and God's in the thing. I mean, there is some things that God is doing, right? But then they get just kind of misled, and maybe it's some desires of the flesh and not from God and all this stuff. And they just, they just run. They just run down the, towards this thing. And they leave their family behind. And they pursue this calling in the name of calling, but they neglect the weightier matters that God has already issued to them by way of calling. As a father, as a husband, whatever it may be. And respectfully, I must ask, if you're here and they're back there, do you really think that this is God? <laughs> because from everything that I can tell, you're a husband, you're a father, you're all these other things. And if you have shunned those things or walked away from the responsibilities of those in pursuit of something else, brother, somewhere along the line, I think you got deceived. Hallelujah. But the Spirit of God, God is always consistent He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. This word is timely, is fresh, is accurate, is sharp, is penetrable, sharper than a two-edged sword, always able to penetrate down to the division of the joints and the marrow. It will remove any cloud. It will cut through any fog. This spoken word right here will illuminate and inflame calling and purpose in your life like no other book and no other literary work could ever do because the God of the universe himself is in in that word. It is a living word. Jesus said, my spirit, my words are spirit and they are life. You can go to this thing to receive the breath of God, the life of God, to speak into your destiny and your purpose and give you clear direction on a large scale, but on a day-to-day -day journey as well. Hallelujah.